In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Whenever you and I look out upon the world, and we look upon our society, and we're flummoxed by all the immorality, we're flummoxed by all the utter disregard for anything sacred and holy, we as Christians often tend to misdiagnose the situation. We kind of, in our conversations, we think we've got it nailed down. We think that if we just fix this, well, then our society will be improved. It will be better. It will be back on track. If we can just get back to this place. It's no secret. Christianity in our country is going down the tubes as church attendance and membership are in rapid decline and any talk of God and of Christ are pushed to the margins in the public sphere. We're growing more and more accustomed to the fact that God's Word will be more and more despised and hated by our society. You know what the fastest growing religious group in America is? It's, it's this weird phenomenon. It's called the religious nuns. Not N-U-N, but nuns. N-O-N-E-S. This is the fastest growing group. They're recruiting members by the thousands every day. It's those people who check, whenever they check the religious box, they check none. Okay? Now, the Bible helps us to understand how... It helps us to understand this situation rightly. It gives us the lenses for which to, from which to view the situation. See, it's not that people are growing less religious. Because that's actually impossible. It's impossible to be less religious. The truth is that religious devotion in our society is as strong as ever. It's just directed at anything other than God. That's the truth. See, when the religious nuns check that box, they think that what they are saying is that they have no loyalty to any particular deity. But try as they might, there is the inescapable reality that you and I will all inevitably worship something or someone. In most cases, what what the nuns have done is replaced organized religion with politics. Which is why you see the discourse function the way that it is. That's why the temperature is so turned up on every single political conversation is because we've displaced organized religion and now we have a new religion. The religion that we look, uh, that we look to, the, the religion that's going to deliver us from everything that plagues society. Politics. And here's why. It's because the human heart is always, always directed at something which we believe will deliver us the highest good. The human heart is always directed at something from which we believe we will derive the highest good. (laughs) Have you ever tried to not desire something? This is what you get in a religion like Buddhism. Buddhism tells you that what you need to do to reach the ultimate state is just not desire anything. Turn off your desire switch. But that's impossible. Your heart will always want something 
above everything else. And the thing that you ultimately want becomes your God. That's worship. That's how this works. Sin takes the human heart that is directed towards God to receive everything good from Him and turns it away from Him. It even turns it inwardly on ourselves as we become our own gods. You see, it's not that the heart stops its religious impulses ever, but that it now desires to have another God. And this is called idolatry. The problem in our world is not primarily about immorality. It's not about the, the lack of religious fervor and devotion. The fervor and the devotion are all there. Again, you can't turn off that switch. The problem is one of false worship. But it isn't just a problem out there, brothers and sisters. It is actually a problem that is in here with us. Because we constantly look elsewhere for our ultimate comfort and security. We bank on other things to deliver to us what only God can. Here's some, there's some really simple diagnostic questions that we can ask ourselves. You know, if we're willing to be honest and forthright with ourselves or even in church, there's some questions we can ask to see if we've maybe replaced God with something in our lives. What do we daydream about the most? What do we center our entire lives around? Career? Kids? Entertainment? Ourselves? You see, the hard truth is that we may be replacing God in our lives without us even knowing it. Ask yourself this, what is the one thing in my life that if it were taken away, I would not be able to survive? Because that's likely where your fear, love, and trust ultimately lie. That is the thing that you are looking to, to deliver to you what only God can. Now here's the sad reality and the sad part about all this. And we sing... We get, this is what we are getting at whenever we sing Abide With Me. Those things that we trust in above God are not meant to bear the weight that we put upon them. And whenever something is not designed to bear weight, what does it do? It breaks. It fails. The usual trap for us Christians is that we take those good things that God gives to us, and notice those things that I named, career, family, uh, uh entertainment, all of those things are pretty good. These are good gifts that God wants us to have and wants us to enjoy. The problem comes in whenever we elevate those things to God's status. When we take a good thing that God wants us to enjoy and as a token of God's love for us, and we make that our ultimate God. And Scripture tells us that the effect of this idolatry following these gods that cannot see is that we ourselves become blind. Because idolatry means that we've turned away from the light of God's face and we've turned to these false gods that can only stare back at us blankly. And as we worship them, 
This is the principle. Whatever you look to to derive your ultimate good, your ultimate satisfaction, that is the thing that you worship. And whatever you worship, that is what you become like. You become like that very thing that you are worshiping. And the end result is that we become blind. We are blind because we are unable to see with the eyes of faith the one who has redeemed us, the one who has purchased us from sin and death, the one who has bought us back from these false gods. But God has waged war. God has come to our defense. He has promised to crush these idols and he will not rest brothers and sisters until he has killed every single one of them and until he has freed us from their clutches he will not leave us in our blindness but he will cause us to see he will lead us through the darkness of this world even though along the way our idols constantly call to us with their siren songs god will not let go of us In today's Old Testament lesson, we hear this prophecy about what God had planned to do for his idolatrous people and how he would deliver them. And this prophecy ultimately directs us to what God would do for them and for us in Christ. At the end of our passage in Isaiah 42, here's God's prognosis for the the situation. Here's how hopeless the thing is. He says, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. You see, it was hundreds of years of gross idolatry that put the northern kingdom of Israel under judgment. It's not just that they were bad people. It's not just that they were highly immoral. They were immoral because they worshipped false gods. And because they trusted in those other gods, the true God actually permitted the Assyrians to come in and to conquer them. And now in our text today, Isaiah prophesies a similar judgment against Judah, the southern kingdom. They are supposed to be God's servant. They are supposed to bring hope to the nations. They are supposed to be a light to the nations. But they've been blinded by idols. They've been walking in darkness. In verse 13, which I didn't read this morning, it comes just before the reading. God wages war. Here's what he says. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. So what we see in this verse is that God has determined to set himself against the idols of his people. That he is a man of war. But that's just the first part. Verse 14 says this, as God's cry climaxes into this sound that is unmistakable to most of us. Verse 14, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. 
scholars suggest that the battle cry of Yahweh is the terrifying part, and that the cry of the woman is kind of this, it means, uh, it denotes God's mercy and God's love for his people. But I tell you, love can be terrifying. And frankly, the cry of the woman is far more terrifying to me than any battle cry of any man. There is no power on earth like a woman in labor who will do anything for the sake of her children. This is the type of fury, the type of love, the terror that I'm talking about. This is the fervor that God has for delivering his people. Just like a woman in labor. And verse 15 tells us the result of all of that motherly shouting and shrieking. He says, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and I will dry up the pools. So his people will go into exile for 70 years because of their idolatry. But then, then there will come a time where God sounds the battle cry, a time when God screams like a loving mother and the sound of his voice will cause all this destruction. But is God just throwing a temper tantrum here? What is happening here? Here's what he says in verse 16. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do, and I do not forsake them. Though Israel had the blindfold on, God was going to grab them by the hand and lead them out of the darkness. And the destruction that he was going to cause was going to be for their sake, so that they would have level ground to walk upon. He was going to lead them in the way that they should go. And in the process, here's what was to become of their idols and those who refused to be led by God. Verse 17, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols who say to metal images, you are our gods. They are defeated, put to shame. God would lead them out of their exile. He would cause them to see their idols for what they really were, false gods that could not save. And he would open their eyes by granting them faith in his promises and cause them to trust in him alone. He would give them a type of new birth. Today's gospel lesson shows us how God came to do this for them and for us. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who was born blind. After he made mud with his spit and some dirt and he put it on the man's eyes, Jesus then instructed him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And the man came back seeing. The Pharisees, of course, quibbled with the fact that Jesus was healing on the Sabbath. This was nothing new. And after they cast the man out of the synagogue for insisting that Jesus was a prophet, Jesus went to the man, he found him, and he asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man responded, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, it's the one who's speaking to you. And Jesus revealed himself to be the Savior. And through his word, the man had not just eyes unblinded, but now he had spiritual sight and he was able to see Jesus for who he was, the Messiah, the Son of Man. And the text says that he worshipped him. 
Jesus is the only true object of faith, the only Savior who can deliver us. It was the Pharisees who were revealed to be blind as they refused Jesus' intention to actually grab them by the hand and to lead them out of their false worship. People of God, your Lord has refused to leave you in darkness and in the clutches of your false gods who cannot see. He has sent Jesus to conquer them. His work in healing this man who was born blind ultimately pointed forward to what he would do through his cross and his resurrection in conquering our spiritual blindness. It points forward to what he will do for us on the last day when he completely heals our every infirmity. He makes these bodies of ours completely new. He has crushed our idols beneath his nail-scarred feet. He has opened our blinded eyes by taking that blindness upon himself. He went into the darkness of Good Friday to find you, to snatch you away from the clutches of your idols. He experienced the agony of his own father turning away from him as an assurance to us that our Heavenly Father will never turn away from us. We will never be left in the dark. We will never be abandoned by the God who screams out for us like a woman in labor. He has risen from death. He has ascended into glory so that as we behold him with our unblinded eyes, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And as we do, as we behold him and his glory and his promises for us in the gospel, he slowly but surely begins to unpry our grip upon our idols. And he takes it, our hands, and he places them in his. And he leads us as he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he leads us on into eternity. You see, the God who pledged to go to war against your idols has won the victory over them. He has put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross. He has defeated them by the blood of His Son. And the God who cries out over you, the God who pants like a woman in labor over you, has actually given you the new birth in the waters of your baptism. He has shown the light of the gospel upon your darkened and idolatrous heart and has caused it to beat for Him. And this is just the beginning. As you've been given the first fruits of the Spirit, as you journey through Lent, repent. Repent and turn from your idolatry. Whatever it is that you're trusting in more than God, it cannot bear the weight of your fear, love, and trust. It is not worthy of your faith. Turn from your idols. Trust in your Lord. Because your idols will fail you and Jesus will not. It is your Lord who has you by the hand right now and will not let you go. It is your master who uses every tool at his disposal to guide and direct your heart away from the things in your life that only give you empty promises. It is your Savior who gives to you his Holy Spirit 
through his word and through his sacraments, so that your eyes would be open and that they would remain wide open, unblinded, so that by faith you continue to see and believe in the Son of Man who constantly covers you with his love and his forgiveness. So our text for today concludes this way. In verse 21, it says that the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. He will magnify his law. The the word here is Torah. This is the teaching of his word. He will make it glorious in the sight of the nations. And God's intention here is to not only lead you out of darkness as he has through his son, his intention is to do so for the nations. He magnifies his Torah, the teaching of his word, through his people, his church, as we ourselves are witnesses to the light of the gospel. So when we look out on our world and we look out on our society, we know what God intends to do. We understand that the problem is not the lack of religious zeal. The problem is idolatry. The problem is false worship. And because the light of the gospel has shined into our hearts, and because our Lord is leading us through the darkness of this world, we can call others away from their false worship. We can share with them how God is shining the light of the gospel in their hearts too through the person and work of Jesus. We can tell them about the Savior who holds on to us and will never abandon us to the dark. We can tell them about his love for them and how he has overcome their idols as well through the cross and through the resurrection. God help us to do this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.